It's my great joy this morning to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Daniel chapter 1. Continue our sermon series on courageous. Daniel chapter 1. This morning we look at courage in the culture. As you turn there, I'm actually going to read uh, verses from the psalm, Psalm 137 verses 1 through 4. Because it's in the same context. It's a time called the Babylonian captivity. The people of Israel were carried off into captivity in Babylon. And Psalm 137 is them crying out to the Lord in response to that. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today to sing, to pray together, to baptize together, to open your word together. Lord, I know that I am so needy of seeing the people who gather here. Being reminded that I'm not in this alone. And I am so needy of my thoughts in these days being shaped and formed according to the truth of Your Word. Thank You for Your self-revelation in Scripture. May we receive it gladly today. May we not be the same because we have heard Your Word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's a question the inhabitants of Jerusalem were asking as they found themselves captured and carted off to Babylon. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Where is the temple? Where is the community? Here we are in Babylon. Look at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1. It sets the context for the whole narrative. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There had been a time of relative peace in Jerusalem. The people certainly had gotten comfortable with the peace that they were living in the midst of. And then all of the sudden, Nebuchadnezzar, his name means Nabu protects, Nabu his God that he served. Nabu protects, heads off to Jerusalem and sieges it. This is around 605 BC and the, the city continued to fall in stages. One other primary stage, 597, another one in 587. Ultimately, the temple was destroyed and laid waste. 
the peace of Jerusalem was shattered. And now they're asking the question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in Babylon? How shall we sing the Lord's song when people are worshiping Nebu? How shall we sing the Lord's song when people are worshiping Bel and Aku? How can we sing the Lord's song here? We have no temple. We have no place that represents the presence of God. We have no land. We are in Babylon. It is a question that many Christians in America find themselves asking in these days. The land feels a bit more foreign. I was talking on the phone to somebody yesterday, thinking about the things that have happened in recent years. And they said to me with all seriousness, I just sat there for a while thinking about all of this and cried. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Things in our nation are changing rapidly. If you would have said 30 years ago that same-sex marriage would be a legally protected so-called right in America, it would not have been believable. Perhaps the most sobering thing that has happened in recent years in my mind is the Planned Parenthood videos that came out and there is visible evidence that people are not only killing babies, but selling their body parts for profit. And it was met largely by a cultural yawn. In the larger culture, it has not been a scandal in the least. Shocking. This election cycle, I see people doing and saying things that I cannot even fathom. And I don't mean the candidates. Politics has always been nasty and difficult and shocking. I don't mean the candidates, I mean people. And those who call themselves evangelical Christians. And it seems with some today that the thought of being in power matters more than the most egregious character flaws. Psalm 137 is a response to the Babylonian captivity. The book of Daniel seeks to answer that question. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And for those of us who are feeling more of a sense of captivity in the place we live, it is a glorious place that the providence of God has placed us this morning. It is a plan in the book of Daniel, which chapter 1 summarizes the message of the whole book. It's a plan for what you are to do when the things that you believe, cherish, and hold most deeply 
are repudiated by most people around you? What do you do when what you believe is absolutely not believed in the place where you lived? You live. What do you do? Well, Daniel 1 is dealing with that situation. What do you do when you're a young man and you went to sleep in Jerusalem and you wake up in Babylon? What do you do? How do you respond? Well, as we look at chapter 1, it sort of frames the whole issue for us. The peace has been shattered. And the first thing we see is that God is always on the right side of history. I want you to hear me say that. There's a lot of talk today about all kinds of things. You know, I just want to be on the right side of history. It's easy to be on the right side of history because God is always on the right side of history because God is the author of history. Immediately, the book of Daniel says something remarkable about the apparent disaster and crisis that the people are facing. Notice what he says in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, talking about Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar. That's the place where the Tower of Babel was being built. The land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. That action is Nebuchadnezzar declaring victory in the name of his God over the God of the Israelites. To take the vessels and place them in his own temple, in his own treasury, is to declare that he has won the victory. But don't miss what it says. Why did Nebuchadnezzar win the victory? And the Lord gave King Jehoiakim into his hand. The Lord. This was what the Lord was allowing to happen. He was not ceasing to be sovereign. He was still God when Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Jerusalem. It is an important reminder that this folds over into the history that God is unfolding. Somehow, some way, it serves His purposes. Just like in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 when we, when we read that wicked men by their wicked deeds were hanging Jesus on the cross. And yet we keep reading and it says He was delivered up by the foreordained plan of God. Which is it? Is he there by the wicked deeds of wicked men or is he there by the purposes of God? And the answer is yes. That's how sovereign God is. When when cultural chaos comes, it doesn't thwart the plan and purposes of God. It folds over into them. You see, verse 2 is not simply a statement about a practical cultural problem. Verse 2 is dealing with a theological problem. The theological problem is that the people associated God and worship with Jerusalem and with the temple. And rightly so, God ordained that to happen. There is a place that symbolically represented His presence. 
It was a declaration to God for them to have a visible reminder that God was among them. Of course, God is not contained in any sort of temple. It was a gift of God. It was a signifier of His power. And the signifier of His power that God had given is being laid waste. It's on the ground. Here is the struggle that we all have. When my experience goes completely against my expectations, what will I believe? When we say to ourselves, the worst thing I could imagine happening, and we fill in that blank, and it happens, what will we believe? The people said they believed God as they were in Jerusalem, the true and living God. They believed that God was among them. After all, He kindly gave the temple. What would they believe with the temple in ruins? What will you believe when the things that you have expected are in ruins? You see, just like with ourselves and our circumstances, we have to think about God first and then draw conclusions about our circumstances, not, draw, not think about our circumstances and draw conclusions about God. We have to do the same thing with the culture. When we think about the culture and what it means to be Christians in the world we actually inhabit, we must think first all about God. And then we draw conclusions about our life in the culture. If we aren't careful, we're really worshiping the culture and trying to co-opt God for what we worship most. We cannot look at the world around us and say, it will be best if this happens, and then when it doesn't happen, make conclusions as though God is not coming through for us. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And he is still sovereign, and he is still on his throne. By the way, if you look down with me at verse 9 of Daniel chapter 1, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, As for these four use, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And God gave. You see, he is framing the entire story not to allow you to wrest it away from what God is doing. Daniel chapter 1 is what God is doing. God is unfolding history, and God's history is the right side of history. The only way to be on the wrong side of history is to think that you know better than God how history ought to unfold. It's easy to be on the right side of history, and by history, with a Bible in my hands, I mean eternity. We trust in the author of history. Let me tell you the way to be on the wrong side of history. Think that you can decide what be, ought to be happening. And trust in what you see. That goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? You can have all of this. Enjoy it. 
to the glory of my name. There's one particular tree in the garden. Don't eat of it. The voice of a serpent comes in and the Bible says, Eve saw that it was good. She heard God say it would not be good, but she saw it was good. She trusted in what she saw over what God had said. What about you? What about you? Do you think you can determine what ought to be happening and the way things ought to go by what you see? No. You must start with God and then reason out about your culture and not the other way around. And as we do so, we must battle in our thinking to begin with God because we realize that the culture that we are in is not neutral. You've got to understand that. Because the second thing we see in the text in verses 3 and 7 is that culture always attempts to indoctrinate us in the wisdom of the world. Nothing's neutral. You get some ideas about parents sometimes, and they're like, well, you know, I just want to let them decide for themselves. And Well, your children aren't some little blank slates walking around among blank slates. The culture is trying to indoctrinate them in the wisdom of the world, period. You've got to realize that, and the same is true with you. We've got to refuse to be assimilated into the surrounding culture if we are to live for the glory of God. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. In other words, ultimately to serve in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. They were to end up in the service of the king. Now, do you get what's going on here? When when Jerusalem is sieged, the immediate plan of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians is to take the king, the royal family, and to take the best and the brightest and the smartest. Take them to Babylon, not to abuse them, not to treat them harshly, not to starve them, but to do the exact opposite. Let's take the best and brightest and give them the best food and the best drink and the best education and ultimately let's plant them in the best jobs, the government jobs, the place where they will actually have power. Let's not abuse them. Let's plant them among us. Let's give to them. Let's, let's raise them up. In other words, let's make them loyal Babylonians who realize all that Babylon has done for them. 
Here's what I want you to see. Worldliness comes in a liberal package and a conservative package. Worldliness is whenever we try to live in the world and think about the world apart from the gospel. We abstract the gospel from our thinking. There is liberal worldliness and there is conservative worldliness. There is worldliness that says, I'll do whatever I want to do. Nobody will tell me what to do. And there's worldliness that says, I will entrench myself in power no matter what I have to do with other people. I've got news for you. The folks in the south, my region of the country, who were enforcing segregation laws, were culturally conservative. But they did it because they were worldly. Now, worldly people always try to find justifications for what they do, and many try to justify it with a Bible in their hand, which is a farce. But do not think that worldliness only comes in liberal packaging. We must not abstract the gospel from any of our thinking. We must determine to know nothing among anyone but Christ and Him crucified. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's plan is this. That Babylon is a foreign land that Nebuchadnezzar does not want them to see as a foreign land for long. He wants them to be thinking about Babylon at some point as home sweet home. Make them one of us. And by the way, power is intoxicating. You take even a man like Billy Graham, who too close to the president, and by Dr. Graham's own admission in the Nixon White House, he sort of got trapped in and sucked into worlds. And there's tapes out there where you can hear Billy Graham saying things you wish you didn't hear Billy Graham saying. And by the way, that's no knock on Billy Graham. It's a warning. If Billy Graham can be intoxicated by cultural power, what do you think about me and you? See, power is intoxicating. They're trying to invite them in. Look at the government jobs that are out there for you. You will be in service of the king. Paul warns us in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. The word conformed means do not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Nebuchadnezzar wants to squeeze these young, bright people into the mold of the Babylonian world. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Why did they change their names? Well, because incorporated in their names was the name of God. Daniel, El, name of God. Hananiah, Yahweh. Um, you just go down this list, Azariah, Yah, uh, Mishael. What they did was incorporate the names of the gods of Babylon in their names. Shadrach, Meshach, 
Abednego, Belshazzar, the gods were Bel, Nebu, Aku, Ak. This is a transformation that's going on here. We will give you a new name. We will give you not your original names, which meant Yahweh is gracious. God has judged who is what God is. And Yahweh has helped. And we will give you Babylonian names. This is the attempted transformation. There's something you've got to know here. These four young men were not religious leaders. They were just four young men. So what will they do? Dads? 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old sons? Somebody plucks them out tonight and puts them in a foreign land. What do you think they'll do? That's what happened here. What will they do? And by the way, the warfare of Nebuchadnezzar here is every bit as much a warfare as when he sieged Jerusalem. (laughs) Goodness. That's just weird. (laughs) Jerusalem! It's every bit as much as warfare. We don't tend to think this sort of subtle indoctrination is warfare. But it is. How do you think about the world? Warfare. How do you process the world? Warfare. We've got to fight, Paul says, to take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ. Warfare. We've got to tear down strongholds. Strongholds that would push Christ out. This is warfare. What will Daniel and his friends do? Well, let me tell you what. Christians often do at times of cultural chaos. Some just capitulate. They just absorb into the culture. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. If you fight it, join it. The whole same-sex marriage thing, churches are going to fall left and right. Now that it's accepted in the culture, it'll start to be accepted in churches that are absorbed into the culture. But there's also another danger. The danger is not absorption. But isolation, just withdrawal. They're the bad people. We're the good people. Let's hide out on our own. Let's don't have anything to do with them. Let's just win the culture war. Let's just point out how awful they are. And we are the good and righteous people. Let's withdraw from those bad people and have nothing to do with them. Withdrawal and capitulation, isolation and absorption, both are cowardly acts. Neither is courageous. You can yell loudly because you're a coward and you don't want to really step in and face anything. You can just simply go along to get along because you're a coward. You just don't want to face being different. You see, these are both different aspects of cowardice. Both are fearful. Both are ways of responding to culture and its attempt to indoctrinate that wave a white flag. One waving a white flag by being absorbed into it, and one waving a white flag by withdrawing from the battle altogether. But both are waving the cultural white flag. Neither are God-exalting ways to respond, and neither are the way Daniel and his friends responded. They responded with courage. Well, how do you respond with courage? 
Well, I would put it this way. It's accommodation without compromise. Think about when we send, when we send Eric Turner to Cordova, a little village in the Andes Mountains. What if he had worn a three-piece suit every day? He's not accommodating to what, what it's like there. He needed to dress more like the people there. He needed to eat the food that the people there ate. He's accommodating. May not have been his preferences. He may want a big juicy cheeseburger. But he is accommodating to the food there. Right? But he cannot compromise in ways in which that culture is at odds with the gospel. There he must never compromise. But in every other way, he accommodates. He cooperates. He embeds himself. The same is true for us. The problem is that we are often more dogmatically ferocious about defending our secondary preferences than we are about matters that demand real conviction. That's the truth. That's the battleground that we're in. Accommodation without compromise. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved, the the word means purposed, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or drink the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. By the way, there's a, in the Hebrew, there's a definite article, the God. In other words, Not the fake God, Nabu. Not the fake God, Baal. Not the fake God, Aku. The God gave Daniel favor. But, But do you notice what he draws the line at? Food. Why? Because he just was really, he just really had a strict diet. He's like, you, all you on these weird diets where you just, you know, takes you 10 hours a week preparing the meals. Because you got to get all the ingredients just right. Was it just? No, it's not that at all. It was because God had given dietary restrictions. It was the Word of God. It was the law of God. At this time, those dietary restrictions were setting apart this people as different. God didn't say you couldn't have that name. So they said, okay, call us a new name. They didn't argue about that. They didn't even complain about that. God didn't say you can't be educated at the University of Babylon. So they said, sign us up. We'll learn the language. We'll read the literature. Because the word of God didn't say those things, but there were dietary issues. He didn't want to absorb into the culture Daniel and his friends. But he was willing to accommodate in all kinds of ways. Now, I guarantee you when Daniel was sitting in Jerusalem thinking about college... He didn't have the University of Babylon high on the list. But that's where he finds himself. And I don't think he was ever sitting around saying, you know, I'd rather be called Belshazzar. No. But that's the name he's got now. But God said something about this that's different. Conviction. Refusal to compromise on what God has said. Willingness to accommodate on all kinds of other things. This is courageous conviction. Courageous conviction is not rooted in personal preference. It's rooted in truth. The loss of personal preference in the big scheme of eternity, big deal. 
Truth matters now and forever. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord and the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So would you endanger my head with the king? In other words, it, we're giving you the best stuff. If you don't eat the best stuff, you're not going to look like the others and the king's going to be mad at me. Because we are, we are bringing you in and we're giving you the best. Note what Daniel says beginning in verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Now, look at what's going on here. Daniel resolved conviction. Then Daniel says, okay, do this. Feed us regular uh, uh, stuff, not the king's stuff. And observe us, the folks that are eating off the king's table. And see, in other words, he's willing to publicly declare that he believes in the power of his God. He believes that his God will care for him. So we have two things that are vitally important to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. One is conviction that will not compromise God's word and the truth of God. The second is public declaration of faith in God. Unashamed, not hiding, not, not mincing your words about your commitment to God. But those happen in the context of willing accommodation in all kinds of other ways. It's really important to get. Look at what happens in verse 15. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Probably the only people in the history world said, praise God, we're fat. We're fat and good looking to the glory of God. Then all the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took away their food and wine and they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave, there it is again, them learning, skill in literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. In other words, in service of the king, they were the elite corps. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That would have been 583, meaning that Daniel lived to see the actions of Nebuchadnezzar reversed. Did you see how many times 10 came up? Verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. 
Verse 14, they tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days. Verse 20, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his court. 10. That's not just accidentally happening. 10 is a word marked by complete fullness. In other words, God fully did this for them. 10 times better, meaning this is not a close competition. They are completely better. They are fully better. God has been fully vindicated among the people. But do you see what they're doing? They are not outraged about their preferences. They are not first and foremost, thinking in terms of what they have the cultural right to do. They're thinking about God. They are not just contentious because they don't like what's going on. In fact, they're the opposite. They're gladly accommodating to what's going on where they can, and yet... They do have the conviction, and they are giving public testimony to that conviction without apology. Their confidence as God is unashamed because they have courageous conviction that's not defending them and their preferences, but standing as a beacon of light to the glory of God. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Well, no matter what happens, you remind yourself that God is always on the right side of history. And no matter where you find yourself, you can live His story, His history. It starts there. That's true no matter what happens in an election, no matter what happens in the Supreme Court, no matter what militaries and terrorists want to do around the world, God is always on the right side of history. You can always be in line with the purposes of God and living to the glory of God and thus on the right side of history no matter where you find yourself. And no matter who's elected to what office, no matter what a military leader does around the world, God is always on the right side of history. Do you believe it? If you do, talk like it. One of the problems in the contemporary public square for evangelicals is we sound like we believe we're losers. We're not. We're not. Doesn't matter what the scoreboard looks like. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and said, It is finished. And he rose from the dead and he said, He's returning. That is the winning side, period. Everything else is just the footnotes of history on how we get to make much of that. Sometimes we get to make much of that in the seats of power, and sometimes we get to make much of that on the margins. Think about these young men and what they got, what they knew. They didn't just sit around and whine, they started to serve. So first of all, God is always on the right side of history. Second of all, we've got to realize that the culture is not neutral. It's attempting to indoctrinate us in the wisdom of the world. As much as we want to evangelize the culture According to the truth of the gospel, the culture wants to evangelize us in a self-referential wisdom of the world. Nobody is a neutral party in this battle. The Bible calls it spiritual warfare. And the worst position to be in spiritual warfare 
is to be in warfare and not know that you're in a battle. Culture's not neutral. Don't think it is. Don't expect it to act in neutral ways. But thirdly, the not neutral culture is not our enemy. It's our mission field. The not neutral culture is not something that we hate and despise. It's something we commit ourselves to love. Love enough to have courageous conviction. To speak up in the public square. To stand for the truth of the gospel. Capitulation to the culture, absorption into the culture, is worldliness. Withdrawal from the culture, isolation from the culture, is a different form of worldliness. The gospel calls us away from both. We don't capitulate and we don't withdraw. We have the courage to stay engaged in the battle. We accommodate and cooperate with countless things that are contrary to our preferences. But we never are to compromise the truth. By the way, if Jesus was a cultural isolationist, every one of us would end up in hell. There's no better culture than the fellowship of the union of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God didn't do what He did in the world because things weren't going good among the Trinity. He did it to overflow His love. And the Lord Jesus, God the Son, stepped out of perfect culture and stepped into a world of sin. But He never absorbed, it never absorbed Him. He never capitulated. He was without sin, the Bible says to us. And He was crucified, dead and buried. And He rose from the dead. If Jesus would have isolated from culture, you would be doomed and damned. If Jesus would have absorbed into the culture, you would be doomed and damned. But he raises up a people and he tells us things like this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You can't be the light if you absorb into the world And you can't be the light if you withdraw from the world because who puts a light under a bushel, Jesus says. Jesus prayed for us, by the way. He's always praying for us, but the recorded prayer, John 17, says that he's prayed specifically to the Father, do not take them out of the world. But rather, we are to be in the world, but not of it. And I've got news for you. On this side of the cross, the only way to sing the Lord's song is in a foreign land. We're not Israel. Israel was pointing ahead to Jesus. He is the Jew that kept the covenant promises. Israel was an identifiable people. You wanted to follow Yahweh, you gave up where you were and you come and join them. There was a location, there is a temple. But Jesus fulfills the promises of God. And now the church takes root all over the world. The church 
is the place of God, the people of God, the community of faith, but it is embedded in the world. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we're foreigners, we're strangers. Peter says in 1 Peter that believers here and now on this side of the cross are strangers, foreigners, exiles, and pilgrims. That's who we are. The only way you ever sing the Lord's song on this side of the cross is in a foreign land. But here's the problem. By the way, this is exactly how Paul lived. This accommodation without compromise. If you'll remember in Acts 16.3, Paul tells Timothy, go get circumcised. You're ministering among the people who are circumcised. Go do it. Accommodate. But in Galatians... They want Titus to get circumcised, and he says, absolutely not. Why? In Galatia, they thought that circumcision was a part of salvation. He would not compromise the truth, it's not. Where Timothy was, that was not the case, so he's glad to accommodate. Do you see that? That's the way we're to live in the world. We seek the good of the city. We stand for truth. We, we minimize our preferences and we maximize truth. We love our neighbor. We bless those who persecute us. But here's what I want you to see this morning. The problem is not that we have to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. The problem is that we used to think we didn't have to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Because when we were in the seats of power... When we had more cultural sway, we thought this was home. We thought this was not a foreign land. That's the problem. Praise God for waking us up. Because when the ease in Zion fails to understand who we are and what we do, that ease needs to be broken. At one time we thought... That in the U.S., we were not in a foreign land. But we are. And the same is true for every place in the world. And there are beacons of light and there is salt that's forming up in every tribe, tongue, and nation. But none of those nations are ultimately home. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming for all the people of God. And when that time comes... We will not sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. But until then, may we sing. May we have the courage to accommodate preferences. And may we have the courage to never, ever, ever compromise gospel truth. Because we believe that there is someone more important than all the things that we fear. And we serve Him no matter what. Let's pray.